Well, this morning we have the privilege of having a, a guest with us, uh, Dr. Harry Long, who was the longtime pastor and the, actually had planted uh, the Sycamore Presbyterian Church in Midlothian. Uh, Harry is also the chairman of the General Assembly Planning Committee for uh, 2024, which will be held in Richmond. Uh, Tim Nargi and I are both part of that committee, and so it's been a, a pleasure to get to know Harry uh, over these past few months that we've been uh, serving on that committee. Uh, but in one sense, it's kind of been odd. Uh, Harry didn't know a lot about me, but I've known a lot about him because of a lot of tentacles that go back in the past, both for me and, and for Camper. Uh, Harry's mother and father. Uh, Harry's father was a longtime pastor in the PCA, was pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, when a, a genuine revival, and yes, that happens in Presbyterian churches, um, not often enough, but it does happen in Presbyterian churches, and one happened during uh, Dr. Jordan Long's uh, tenure at Lookout Mountain, which transformed that church and significantly transformed the city of Chattanooga in, in the years to come. Uh, but uh, Harry's parents took uh, an interest and invested in Carolyn and I when our first church, when we were right out of seminary, uh, Harry's dad would regularly take me uh, to lunch and often take Carolyn and, uh, and uh, Harry's mom and dad would take us to dinner. Uh, and uh, just a, just a pr profound blessing uh, to be able to have had that. On top of that, Harry's uncle was one of my seminary professors, one who I've quoted several times, but I don't know that I've cited him because you, you didn't know uh, who he was, but he was the, uh, he was the kind of the, the crazy missionary, let's just put it that way, that I periodically uh, mention. And Harry's brother was one of Camper's professors in seminary. And so our, uh, our relationship, which has been a one-way street until recently, um, goes way back. Uh, but because General Assembly is coming and there'll be opportunities uh, for in a year from now, but uh, there's going to be opportunities for our church to participate and involve members of the church. Uh, and just because it'd be a blessing for this church to hear from Harry, uh, we've invited him to preach this morning. So Harry, if you'll share a little bit how we can get involved and then bring the word. Thank you so much, Dennis. Uh, we have... We had the privilege of talking at our booth at General Assembly this year. The booth that was presenting will be in Richmond next year. And he started telling me things about my father that, that I didn't know. Uh, he, it, was, it was great to hear. Yes, there was a revival at Lookout. Lookout Mountain Preston Church had been um, you know, really kind of a typical social church you know, for, uh, you know, for a while. And yet my father believed the scripture, and it got to a point after he'd been there eight or nine years that uh, people were beginning to become Christians, and the elders, uh, some of them were saying, there's too much Bible in this church. And then there was, God did this amazing work. My father actually got, to, this is kind of spontaneous since you raised the subject, but it's really good to, to know these testimonies and remember the past. My father got to a point after an elders retreat where they were really complaining about the Bible. And he got halfway up to the pulpit and stopped in this you know, fairly formal church slate aisle. And he just stopped. They had a radio ministry going, and he forgot about that. He said, I have a sermon prepared, but I don't think it would do anybody any good. What we need is for God to work, and I need you know, your prayer. 
I need you to just pray. So I'm, I'm going to kneel here on the steps. And if maybe some of you have uh, you know, things you'd like to pray about, if you'd like to come up and join me. And I was in college at the time, and my parents called and, and told me this amazing thing happened. About two-thirds of the church came forward to pray with my father. Hearing that from college, away from home, I thought, that means one-third of the church didn't come, and they were just watching. And then my mother said, and we forgot about the radio ministry, it was just dead air. Don't ever try to do that to manipulate God into revival. That wasn't the point. But in the next year or so, God did do this amazing work where elders became Christians. And as elders became Christians, they got into R.C. Sproul, and they ended up leading the church into the PCA in 1981. They've been a, a blessing to me and my family. Uh, to, it, it, it's interesting to hear how that ministry, my father's ministry and other uh, uncle and uh, brothers have, have blessed others. So I'm the, I'm the lesser brother. <laughs> coming here. In fact, you introduced me as Dr. Long. That's my father. I'm D-men without dissertation, and I'm not sure that doctor counts. It doesn't weigh up there with a PhD from Edinburgh, from the University of Edinburgh, like my father had. Uh, here's the thing. As we come together you know, to you know, study God's Word, to open it up, it doesn't depend on the preacher. It depends on God. Now, just tying in with the introduction, I did retire in 2020 from 38 years at Sycamore Presbyterian Church in Midlothian, just one of the Richmond suburbs. And uh, in the presbytery, before uh, that, came, uh, that retirement came about, I went and I was asked by John Robertson, who is the, the AC representative that lines up General Assemblies. He said the Richmond Convention Center has approached us and it would be a great place uh, from, you know, to have General Assembly in 2024. But we need an invitation from Presbytery. Would you raise the subject? So I raised the subject, and I spoke for it. And I was just, uh, this is a privilege that we have to host a General Assembly. Well, if you ever speak up enthusiastically for something, you'll be appointed chair of the committee. So I didn't really get to retire as far as that's concerned. And I am chair of the committee. We'll be meeting at the Richmond Convention Center next year. Our theme is Knit Together. And it's interesting that we have a unique, it's a first-time occasion where four presbyteries, Tidewater, James River, Blue Ridge, and Korean Capital Presbytery are joining together to host General Assembly. So in that, we are knit together in Christ in this effort. Now, this last June at General Assembly, uh, the three founding commitments, the three founding themes of uh, the PCA were emphasized, and I was so glad they were. I was thinking we might need to reignite them for our next General Assembly to be our themes, but they were well expressed this last year that we are faithful to the authority of Scripture we are true to the Reformed faith. We are obedient to the Great Commission. Those will be the three themes of our worship services next year, and you all are close enough to come up to join us in worship on Tuesday night 
you know, Wednesday, look for the schedules, and, and Thursday, Korean Capital Presbytery will you know, have a, a Korean worship service on that night, on Thursday night. It's going to be a special time where we worship God, knit together, and each of those nights will emphasize one of those themes. And perhaps some of you will be able to uh, volunteer. We actually now have a, a chairman for the volunteers subcommittee on our host committee. And that's really good to know because volunteers often say, I volunteer, I want to help, but I don't want to be in charge. I want to leave. We now have somebody who's very capable to be in charge of coordinating volunteers. So you don't have to worry about that. But if you're interested, let Dennis know. We'll really start hitting this, the need for volunteers in the spring of 2024. So watch out for that and how you can serve. Now, I find it interesting in this stage of my life as a retired uh, pastor, retired from uh, Sycamore Presbyterian Church, but not retired from the kingdom, to have opportunity to preach. Because it's really my conviction, as I'm sure it's the conviction of your you know, pastors here, that we let God's word set the agenda. Yes, we choose a book or portions of a book, something like the parables, but we will see what's next, see what's next. Instead of thinking, what do I want to preach on? And then finding the passages to support what I want to preach on. But when I have one opportunity to preach, I found myself asking, what do I want to preach on? And what are the texts? And now that I'm a, a, a retired pastor and getting older, you know, when you get older, you're supposed to get wiser. Yes, pass on this nugget of wisdom to the next generations and, and call them uh, as they're uh, growing up to, to, to this word of wisdom from your elders. Yikes, that's pressure. Uh, in fact, as we get older, we might grow in wisdom, but we start forgetting things <laughs> too. I thought of one passage, which uh, you might have really liked for me to, to preach upon, and that would be Proverbs. You don't have to turn to this one. It's Proverbs 17, 28. It says this, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Let's pray, and it'll be my, my shortest sermon ever. Sycamore might say, this was your best sermon ever. <laughs> Maybe you're biggest interest in coming to church is, I want to go to church and check the box. But I'm most interested in how long the sermon is. I hope it's not too long. Instead of, what does God have to say to us today? It's a little bit like a mother telling her child, here's a tic-tac, this is your supper. Best supper ever, right? Let's do something a little more nourishing than that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And let me set the stage. This is a very familiar passage, and it's so familiar that you might not think it, um, that you, you already know everything about it. But it is like a meal. This is food for today. You had a great meal, I'm sure, last Thanksgiving, but that doesn't feed you today, does it? Now, raise this subject. It's the secret to happiness. Now, I'm overshooting here. How you, know, you choose something like that, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek. So here I'm going to give you the secret of happiness in a, a, a brief sermon on a Sunday morning. I'm going to point to it, but it's a huge subject. 
Have you ever noticed when you buy a car, you start seeing the same car that other people have bought all over the road? Once I chose this subject, I started seeing this subject all over the place. I saw it's negative. I saw reports on how anxiety is increasing in our culture. And perhaps anxiety really is increasing in our culture, but I think that the human race and the fallen world has always been anxious. Sometimes we've had more of a stiff upper lip about it, but I can't believe we're more anxious today than people were in the Great Depression can you? I can't believe people are more anxious today than they were in World War II. Anxiety is always there in the fallen world because things are not right. But if I took your, every one of your emails and texts and could even transcribe your thoughts and we could post them up here on the wall, would that make you anxious? And yet our culture now is posting everything online. I think perhaps there is a rise in felt anxiety when you put yourself out there and you get criticism from the world. It is anxious, an anxious world. But anxiety is always there. How do we deal with that? Perhaps you come in this warning with anxiety. How do you deal with that? The secret to happiness and before we open the text, I want to say this is not a personality test. Some people are more prone to anxiety, and others are more prone to confidence. That's not the spiritual test. If you're more prone by personality to being anxious, perhaps it has driven you all the more to trust in the Lord and not in yourself. If you're more prone to confidence, perhaps you're more likely to, to trust in yourself. Or it could cut the other way. Perhaps if you're prone to anxiety, you have a hard time applying your trust in the Lord to your daily circumstances. And it just stews there. Or you're afraid to really commit to the Lord because in your anxiety, you're just afraid to commit to anything. And the confident person can say, Boy, I see the gospel, I see the grace of God, and I just give myself to Christ, whatever happens. See, it's not a personality test. There are pros and cons to every personality. So that's not the test. It's also not the test about how happy your circumstances are today. The Bible is full of parables that would be like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had his blessings in life. Lazarus was the miserable, miserable guy at his gate. But the parable, the point of the parable was when they died, their happiness was reversed. The rich man had his pleasures now. And the poor man who was miserable here had glory in the life to come. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, the one who was so happy he didn't even have the courtesy to have a midlife crisis. He had everything he needed. And he said, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, you fool, your life will be called upon, accounted for, required of you this night. And he'd stand before God with nothing. Jesus wept over the sins of Jerusalem and rejecting him. Jesus wept over the grief that death caused. 
the this idea of the secret to happiness is not the secret to glibness in this life. I think we can face grief when we have hope in Christ all the more, whereas the world that has no hope can hardly deal with it if they just throw up walls. So I'm not asking you how happy are you today. I'll ask you three questions. First, who are you trusting in? Second, are you veering off? And third, where does Christ lead you? We have two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. They both say the same thing. The Old Testament passage doesn't mention the name of Christ because they didn't know him yet. But it's all about him. And the New Testament spells out the details of what the Old Testament text is calling you to do. It says, trust in the Lord. And that, that will lead us to our third question. Where does Jesus lead you? Let's look at this passage. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, reading from the ESV. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The King James, or the New King James says, or he shall direct your paths. I'll deal with that in a minute, because for a long time I thought one was saying, he will make your path smooth, and the other one, he will lead you down your path. I thought they were different translations. I think they come together. We'll deal with that in a second. Uh, as we work through this passage, let me give you my paraphrase of the passage. Side, side point, Mary and I are reading a, a, a biography of Tim Keller, who passed away this spring. Uh, Tim Keller was in Hopewell when I first came to Sycamore in 1982, and he was my mentor in church uh, planting. I would talk with him about all the different things. It's so interesting to read his biography. We went to the same seminary, a lot of the same influences uh, on our lives. So as I was reading this book, it was interesting to find out more about a, a close personal friend. Although he became the, the big guy in New York, and we, we knew him, but he has thousands of people like me that we call him a close personal friend because he's influenced their lives. There's a chapter in here it's titled, The Woman Who Taught Him to Study the Bible. Tim Keller in college was drawn uh, to faith in Christ uh, through InterVarsity Ministries. And this lady, Barbara Boyd, had developed for InterVarsity how to study the Bible. And I'll just read a, a few of the points in the short version. One, read through the passage at least twice. Two, identify who's involved and what is happening. Three, note words that are repeated or words of contrast, etc. Four, paraphrase the passage. Paraphrases are not bad as long as it's not your primary focus of study. When you read the Bible, put it in your own words. That will reveal to yourself how well you understand the passage, how well you can digest it. I had someone tell me recently, a close a loved one of mine, say, I don't connect with the Bible. Why didn't God uh, write the Bible in a way that I could connect with. And it was kind of, because it's a loved one, it kind of grieved me to hear her say that. But I said, perhaps the problem, a longer conversation, I said, perhaps the problem is you're not connecting with God in the Bible. But put it in your own words. If you don't 
Say, lean not on your own understanding. That's not the way you talk. Put it in your own words. Let's walk through the passage real quickly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not half-heartedly. Have you ever gone to, to get on a boat and you step from the dock onto the boat, but you don't fully commit, you only halfway commit? What happens? Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good with half-hearted commitment. My father used to say, he thought sometimes the people most miserable in this world were half-hearted Christians. I think he said nominal Christians. Uh, he, he, he either applies. He said because they know enough of God to have a conscience about the things of this world, and they feel bad about what they're doing. But they don't know enough of God to really have the joy of their salvation. They're stuck in the middle. Now, I'm not implying that it's better to be half-hearted. Uh, it's better to be a, a non-Christian than a half-hearted Christian because your, your eternal destiny will help you figure out all those things. Okay? But if you're looking for happiness in this life, if you're not trusting in the Lord, if you're only half-hearted about it, then that's not the formula, that's not the secret to happiness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, this is the paraphrase part that really stuck with me, and I hope it sticks with me all my life. As I get older and older, you know, if I don't have a sudden tragic end of life and I go into more and more feebleness, and I'm thinking, this is miserable. I can't stand this. Now, just feed that into whatever your circumstances might be. This is miserable. I can't stand this because God is leaving me in this suffering, in this difficulty. Do not lean on your own understanding. Here's the paraphrase. Don't trust yourself to know what makes you happy. Don't trust yourself to know what makes you happy. If you have a take-home point from this message that you would remember for a long time, I hope it would be, trust in the Lord, not yourself, to know what makes you happy. The core, I think, of every temptation is Satan tempting you, saying, you need this to be happy. Not what God says. You need this to be happy. How many counseling sessions did I have? Lots of times people come for counseling because they really are seeking the Lord. They're not try fighting the Lord. But how many times did I hear something like, doesn't God want me to be happy? And this is what I need. Don't trust yourself to know what makes you happy. You know, the original sin in the Garden of Eden was when Satan came to Eve and said, uh, did God say, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve answered correctly. No, he said, just this one tree not to eat of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, my brother Phil is the, the Hebrew professor. He's the one that Camper had that you referred to. Uh, he's, we've talked about this word, to know. The Hebrew word to know, he says, it's not just to know about. 
It's to choose. Abraham took Sarah into his tent and knew her. What did that mean? He already knew about her. But he chose her to be his wife. So what does it mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's the tree of you choosing for yourself what's right and wrong. Now, that's the original temptation in the original sin. And God was telling Adam and Eve, don't choose for yourself what's right and wrong. Accept my word for it because I know what I created you for. I know what will fill your deepest needs. I know what will make you happy in a happiness that will never end and not be taken away. But if you make yourself God and you choose for yourself good and evil, then you'll end up being miserable. You'll break yourself off from the source of every blessing, and that day you will die. Jeremiah uh, 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Who do you think is saying that? You say, well, that's Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet. He was always upset. That says, declares the Lord. It says, though the Lord is gathering the heavens around himself, the heavenly host saying, look at this and be appalled. Be shocked. What is God appalled and shocked over? passage goes on to say, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, this is not actually the kind of uh, being appalled or being shocked that is judgment where God's just mad at us. It's more like the grieving parent who is appalled and shocked that their child would grow up to turn away from the things that are life-giving into the things that are addictive and destructive. Is that, is that a judgment or is that love? See, that's an expression of love, to be shocked and appalled. That they, God is like, they've forsaken me. I want to give them living waters. And they've turned to trust, for them, trust themselves to know what makes them happy, but they're broken cisterns. It will not satisfy. The next part, trust him in everything. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Trust him in everything. It's not just about going to church. And it is in every stage of life. Now, those of you who are young people here growing up, when I was eight years old, I received Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I meant it. When I hit junior high, I began to pull away because I thought, hey, I don't know, I blamed any awkwardness I had on being a preacher's kid and, and being different and couldn't do the things that were fun. Everything that was fun was wrong. You ever, you ever think that? And it separated me out. In ninth grade, I came to commit my life fully to Christ. And one of the verses that really stuck out to me was, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And God got my attention. 
And I knew it wasn't a health and wealth gospel, that it wasn't he'll just fix every problem, but I knew he would lead to life. And I committed my life to him. When you're young, what, what a joy to get this when you're young so that you can get, live your life following the one who would lead you to life and be with you through all the ups and downs of life. Now that I'm in your midlife, you're wondering, well, I either did it or didn't achieve what I set out to achieve, and you're evaluating your life and what's the purpose in it. You don't have to go through a midlife crisis. And I'll refer to my father again, since you kind of raised him in this. He said Christians should never have a midlife crisis because we don't reach midlife. We have eternal life. How's that for you? As you get older and your body begins to slow down and the aches and pains grow and develop and other uh, serious things uh, develop, do you trust in the Lord in, in that way, in that stage? There's a joy that cannot be taken away. Trust him in everything. And lastly, and he will direct your paths. He won't lead you wrong. He'll lead you. Put it this way. This is almost the, the it's it's almost superficial, but it's true. He'll lead you to the best life ever. Now, if you think short term, then you miss the point. But if you think eternally, long term, you get the point. He'll lead you to the best life ever. When it says he will make straight your paths, it doesn't mean he'll make your life easy. Jesus' life wasn't easy. He, he talked about persecution. He talked about trials. He said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's not he'll make your paths smooth. He'll make them straight. He shall direct your paths. I hadn't really, I, I thought about this translation, never studied it deeply to figure it out because other passages of Scripture establish the principles. But a lady was addressing a women's brunch at Sycamore, and she used the illustration of a plane. And my father was a potter. This connected with me. My father actually used this in a similar uh, way. He said, the plane has a radio, and the radio establishes a vector. And you, wherever you want to go, if you're, you're coming home, you can establish that vector that will lead you to your home airport. You may not be a great pilot, so if you're drifting off to the right, your radio will say, you're off to the right, and you can turn back to the left. You may zigzag a lot, but the vector's true, and the vector will lead you home. He'll make straight your paths. He'll lead you home. But if you trust in yourself to know what makes you happy instead of in the Lord, you're changing that vector to a path that leads to destruction. Another illustration of that vector where you can fall off to one side or the other is every horse has two sides. I can illustrate that very simply with a couple of proverbs. Uh, should you answer a fool? Should you answer a fool? It depends. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Ah, there's your answer. Don't answer a fool. Just don't get into the argument. Except that the next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. It takes wisdom to apply wisdom. You can fall off on either side of that horse. Well, that's just a simple illustration, but it applies to the more challenging things. Here's a question. Should you love yourself? It depends. 
And what do you mean by that? If you mean, I love myself instead of God, that is the greatest commandment and the greatest sin. If you love yourself more than God, that's the greatest commandment and the greatest sin. But if you mean, God loves me, he's demonstrated that in Christ. I feel loved. Then you can approach the second greatest commandment and love your neighbor as yourself. If you fall off the other side of the horse and say, I hate myself, how spiritual am I? If you hate yourself and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, does that give you justification to hate your neighbor? See, that doesn't make any sense. Self-acceptance is not about you just asserting it yourself. I heard recently on the news that there was a, this is a couple of months ago, about sologamy. Did you hear that? People are throwing weddings and marrying themselves. Solo-agamy. Wow! It's like... I'm sitting there thinking, what they're kind of declaring to everybody is, nobody else would love me to marry me, so I'm marrying myself. We used to be self-conscious about selfishness, self-centeredness. We kind of knew that was wrong. Our culture right now is saying self-expression, self-authentication, self-actualization, if you're going to the universities and getting the fancy terms for it, self-acceptance. You know what? It is important that you're able to accept yourself as God made you. But you can't just assert it yourself. You feel accepted when you know that God accepts you through his grace and mercy in Christ. But don't be independent of God and just hug yourself. That's, that's sin. So should you love yourself? It depends on what you mean by it. Last illustration of this is, does God care what you do? Interesting question. It depends. Now, there are instincts to say, yes, God cares what we do, but then Satan can say, he cares what you do. You better measure up or he's not going to accept you, and he can make you fall off that side of the horse, and you can fall into a kind of legalism. Yes, faith plus my works, my life. And we have to declare loudly that the righteousness we have in Christ is the gift of God. Through faith in Christ, it's all what he does for us and given to us. We don't earn it or deserve it. And I'm sure you're familiar with the declaration of the gospel. That doesn't mean that in our heart of hearts, Satan doesn't tempt you to, to say, you know, you better measure up. You better, or God's not going to accept you. God doesn't care what you do in the sense of conditional love. Before the twins were born, Rebecca, the mother, was told that the older will serve the younger. This was to demonstrate that God's purpose in the election might stand not by works, but by him who calls. So then you say, oh, it's not by works. So it doesn't matter what I do. And Satan just pushes you off the other side of the horse. Doesn't matter what I do. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God forbid. You see, Whenever you're, you're resisting one sin, try to think of what the opposite sin is. 
so that you can stay on the horse instead of falling to sin on the other side. Overreaction is just repeated over and over and over again in the world and in the church and in our own lives. But if we think Satan doesn't care which side of the horse we fall off of, as long as we fall. So, what are we saying on the horse for? This is where we'll turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And these verses kind of speak for themselves. Just a brief comment on each expression of it. Where does Jesus lead us? Where did he lead his first disciples? Well, we think of his miracles. We think of his teaching. But Jesus' teaching centered on the work he came to do. He said, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I am the good shepherd, and I laid down my life for his sheep. The central point of his teaching was to tell his disciples what he came to do. He first led them to the cross. Now, that was at the end of three years of ministry, so I'm not talking chronologically about first. But I'm saying first and foremost, everything he said led to his leading them to the cross where Peter, who denied Christ, would find grace and mercy and forgiveness for their sins. For the disciples where Jesus had had to say, oh, ye of little faith, how many times would they find forgiveness for their sins? Where Matthew, the tax collector, would find forgiveness for their sins. If you come to church and you're just burdened with, with guilt and shame, it's hard to come to church because it reminds you of God and you, you feel like such a failure. You need to hear the grace and mercy of God. This is the last illustration that's like the plane vector, like the two sides of the horse. Imagine the, great can the Grand Canyon with the balance beam like the, the women do at the Olympics, stretched a mile across the Grand Canyon, a little four-inch wide beam. And Jesus coming to you and saying, follow me. And he takes off over that beam. I couldn't do it. I'm scared of heights, and it's not true. I, we, none of us would make it a mile on a balance beam like that. We couldn't even start. But he first leads us through the, to the cross, and in the cross, his grace and mercy fills the Grand Canyon. And that balance beam is just sitting four inches off the ground, and Jesus says, hey, follow me. I'll lead you to the cross where you find my grace and forgiveness. Now you can follow me. Then it'd be kind of fun and exciting to try to run as fast as you could across that battle. When you fall off to one side or the other, you just get right back up and keep following the Lord and Savior who's calling you. But he is calling you, follow me. Let's read this passage. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He was leading them to the cross. Secondly, he leads them through life in this fallen world. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Is my theme faithful to this text? Trust in the Lord, not in yourself. To know what makes you happy? Jesus says, let him deny himself. Don't trust in yourself. And take up his cross daily 
and follow me. This is Christian paradox. If you die to self, you're led to life. But if you live for yourself, you die. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There are lots of ups and downs in this life, but Jesus leads you through it, and he's with you every way. He's your ever-present help in time of trouble through the Holy Spirit. You can grieve like nobody else can because you know that it's not the end. You can just face it. You can hurt. You can hurt for others. You can grieve over people's sins like Jesus did. But there's a foundation of joy and happiness because of what Christ has secured for you. So don't Say, I can't do this because it's just be miserable to stay in this, this marriage, to love this child that's rebelling against me, to grow up with these parents. It cuts both ways. To deal with this job pressure, whatever it is. I can't do it if God's calling you to do it. Die to self to follow him. And he leads us in the end to heaven. See, he leads us to the cross. He leads us through this, this fallen life, life in this fallen world. And he leads us to heaven. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And once I chose to, to pass this on to you, this subject, I started seeing it all over the place. And yesterday, I saw... Greg Laurie, have you, have you seen this one? He does these little blurbs with the gospel on uh, TV, 60-second presentations. He's doing a good job uh, with it. He said this, have you ever wondered how to find personal happiness? Don't you stay in my sermon? Let me tell you a secret about finding happiness. The least happy people are the people that live to be happy. But here's the secret. The Bible says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You will never find happiness from seeking it. But if you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will find the happiness you've been looking for in life. He's just a prayer away. What a wonderful way to put it. See, if you're here and you or just in church, you're growing up in church, or you're visiting, or you're, you don't know Christ. This trust in the Lord with all your heart is for you. He'll lead you to the cross where you can find God's grace and forgiveness. But it's not just for you. It's for those of you who've known Christ for 60 years, and you're facing the issues and challenges of life in this fallen world of, of old age. We're doing the funeral uh, this week for Dick Kurtz that you all have come to know. Their son, Glenn, is in our church, and the graveside is going to be uh, in, in Richmond. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He won't forsake you. He won't leave you there. He doesn't leave us in the grave. He leads us to life everlasting. Do you know this? What is it that you've been seeking? Who are you trusting in? Are you veering off? Where does Christ lead you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take this portion of your word 
And let us connect not with the preacher, not even with the book, the Bible, but with you, because this is your word. And I pray that your spirit would be at work in us, whether it's to discover Christ for the first time or to trust in Christ through all the stages of life. I pray that your spirit would work in us uh, to, uh, to let us trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.